Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Dr. Eric Rice. Eric is an associate professor and the founding co-director of the USC Center for Artificial Intelligence in Society, a joint venture of the USC Suzanne Dwarick Peck School of Social Work and the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. Rice received a BA from the University of Chicago and an MA and PhD in sociology from Stanford University. Eric's research focuses on community outreach, network science, and the use of social networking technology by high-risk youth. A few of the big picture questions we cover in this interview include, how can social work utilize AI to address social injustice? How do we define social good? And then how do we design technology to uplift that social good? Where is the limit in the use of technology to solve societal problems, among others? It was our pleasure to have this conversation with Dr. Eric Rice, and now it is our pleasure to share this conversation with all of you. All right, well, we have on the line today, Eric Rice. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Jess. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. And I was wondering, before we get into more of the specifics of your research and the exciting projects that you're a part of right now, if you could tell us a little bit about how you've arrived here in the work that you're doing and a bit about what motivates you as either a researcher or just as a person doing the work you are doing. I don't have a a very linear academic trajectory. I mean, I think some people finish college and then they go to graduate school and they know exactly what they want to do and they go and become a professor doing that. And I got to AI via a winding route. Um, It was not, to be honest, I didn't know that I was doing AI research when I was first doing AI research. I thought that I was doing uh, interesting mathematical modeling with a computer scientist. Um, And then he told me that, you know, we were going to go present this at an AI conference. And I thought, I don't even know what AI means. What are you talking about? And then it turns out he's, you know, this is this is Mill and Tombe. It turns out he's, you know, one of the, you know, sort of big deal guys in AI, right? And and really the, you know, probably one of the biggest deal guys in the AI for social good arena um, from the computer science side. And and as he and I became friends and got into this work, um, I have subsequently become somebody who does AI research and actually knows that I'm doing AI research. Um, But I was, uh, originally I was trained as a sociologist. Um, I was a math nerd when I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. I started my first semester thinking that I was going to be a math major. And then I um, ended up falling in love with social theory. And so I became a sociologist and took a lot of math classes along the way as electives. Um, You know, some people take uh, I don't know, whatever, art history. I took math uh, as my as my college electives because I thought that they were fun classes, which has held me in good stead as a sociology uh, trained person who is a, a, a social work uh, faculty member. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in a school of social work at, at USC in the Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work. And, and I've been in social work now for more than a decade. So it's been, uh, I started in 2009 at the School of Social Work and I 
finished my PhD in 2002. And in, in between there, I had a, a little stint um, at UCLA where I was a non-tenure track researcher in a community health uh, research center, uh, which is really um, where I started to get involved in the work that inspires me, which is the work that I do with homeless adolescents. And, uh, and what happened was when I finished my PhD program, I was a theoretical uh, sociologist, I did a lot of very axiomatics stuff that, that's very akin to microeconomics is really what it is. And we did experimental uh, studies and and I really thought, wow, there's, you know, six people are going to read this stuff um, in the future and three of them are going to automatically like it because I'm on their theory camp and three of them are going to hate it because I'm not. And what am I doing with my life? And and uh, I, I reached out to my networks and, and one of my early uh, advisors who had moved away from Stanford by the time I was graduating, his dad was a professor actually at uh, UCLA who was running a HIV AIDS training program that was this interdisciplinary uh, program that involved people from sociology, psychology, social work, and public health that he was training as fellows. And he had a couple of postdoc positions and I applied for one of them. And when I was interviewing with him, he said to me, let me put it this way, uh, Eric, if you do HIV work, you'll never go home at the end of the day and think, what am I doing with my life? And I thought, this guy's reading my mind. <laughs> this is exactly the problem that I was having was that I felt like what I was doing wasn't terribly meaningful, although intellectually it was fascinating because I was doing this very rich work about social networks and we did a lot of um, uh, work around axiomatic thinking about those models. And so I even had some uh, professors that were interested in some computer simulation type uh, theory development work within sociology. And so when I started working with 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 Milland um, back in 2013, 2014, it was kind of a return to my 1990s uh, sociology roots because I had become this very applied social network researcher that worked on issues of HIV AIDS with homeless uh, youth in LA and thought of myself and still think of myself as a very grounded researcher who knows young people who are experiencing homelessness by name and 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 they know me by name and we have uh, you know relationships with one another and um and i understand what's happening in their lives and the rich context of 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 the complexity of their lives and their people are not you know sort of I don't know, the people that I can drive into little agent models, which is the sort of stuff that I was doing as, an, as a graduate student. But when you start to work on um, AI modeling, having these um, very foundational, fundamental, almost axiomatic views of human behavior can be very useful when you are trying to create mathematical models of human behavior that you can then do computational experiments with to see what's going to happen, um, which is the sort of work that we got involved in. And so, like I said, I wasn't even sure that I was doing AI when I first started doing AI. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a total shock to me. Um, and, and then... Um, <clears throat> Someday uh, in the recent past, I woke up and realized that I ran an AI center called the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Society at USC. And, and I'm still somebody who's trained in a so, as a sociologist who is a social work uh, scientist and thinks of himself as a social worker. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how I got, uh, how, how it is quite that I've, I'm running an AI center, except that I, I mean, I, I know the series of events that led up to it. They just don't always make sense to me. Um, so yeah, it's you know some, sometimes sometimes in academia things 
happen because you are pursuing things that feel exciting and interesting, or at least that's what happens in my life. Um, I've been very fortunate to be somebody who has chased after things that I thought were interesting and been lucky enough that other people thought that they were cool too. So when I was in, you know, in the 1990s, when I was a PhD student, I was really interested in social networks. And then by, you know, the early part of the 2000s, the, you know, by the time you get into, you know, MySpace, Facebook days by, you know, sort of, uh, you know, 2006, seven, eight, you know, kind of era, suddenly everybody's talking about social networks. And here I was sitting, you know, kind of as a person who had been trained in thinking about network models and was very lucky. And I feel the same thing is true with the AI um, uh, boom of the last few years. It's that I, I started doing this work with Millen because I thought it was really interesting and I was chasing it because I thought it was cool. And then you know, somewhere around 2017, 18, I kind of woke up and there, you know, the the world was really jazzed about AI and it was AI this and AI that and AI this. And I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm sitting here doing this AI work. I guess, I guess I'm in the right place at the right time again, um, which is kind of cool. You know, it's, it's, I don't think it's likely to happen a third time, but, um, you know, lightning in a bottle twice is pretty awesome. Uh, so, so yeah, and and I mean and 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 like I said, I think that my my personal motivation for this work is really um aside from thinking about things that I think are intellectually interesting, it's really motivated by this passion that I have for social justice issues. I mean, that's really why I ended up in a school of social work and not in a sociology department or not in a school of public health. Although public health has um a lot of concern about social justice, but not the way that social work does. I mean, social work is inherently a an area that is fundamentally concerned with social justice and addressing issues of social justice. And to be the kind of researcher that I am who's interested in homelessness and HIV prevention and systemic racism and homophobia and these other issues, um, you know, you can sometimes in more traditional disciplines like sociology or psychology or economics you know i think you can sometimes become marginalized if you are working on issues that are about marginalized populations because those are disciplines that are interested in explaining human behavior that is more the experience of most people right whereas social work because it was founded as a practice discipline that's trying to help address the causes and consequences of really urban poverty, I mean, it's really where it started in the, you know, industrialization that, you know, working on homelessness and systemic racism and uh, disease prevention is exactly what social work does. You're not marginalized at all. You're, you're, you're in the middle of the pack and it's, in, that's a nice place to be, uh, to have colleagues that also think that the work that you do is, is, is interesting and exciting. And in your work, since you are, since you are doing, um, AI for social good, people kind of label you as a researcher doing AI for social good. I'm wondering if you can maybe unpack what that is just at a high level and then explain what that means for the research that you're doing specifically like right now. I mean, I guess it a high level what it means is that well first of all I am not an AI uh, I'm not a computer scientist so I partner with computer scientists like Phoebe Vianos and Bister Delkina and Milan Tambe and Amoya Yadav and you know others who um, who are computer scientists and we collaborate on projects where we can 
use AI technologies and techniques to do some usually thing that has to do with intervention work, right? So social work as a discipline is very interested in intervening in the world and trying to address social injustice, um, not just uh, observing it or cataloging it. And so AI can be very useful in a couple of ways. I mean, you for, for one, you can use some techniques like machine learning to do data analysis when you're using big data sets and you're trying to do something like predictive analytics. You're trying to understand, you know, what are the... Uh, you know, what are the causes of a particular um, outcome? And can we can we do some data mining uh, that's maybe a little bit more sophisticated than what you can do with linear statistics, which is what most social scientists are trained to do, right? Although, honestly, I mean, one of the great laughs for me when I first got involved in AI work was that when it was explained to me that logistic regression was something that machine learning AI folks do, and that's the bread and butter of a social scientist uh, when you're doing, you know, sort of public health and social work type of work. And so what they were calling machine learning, I was just calling statistics. And so we, we realized that, that, you know, there was there was some more overlap than I think we understood, but you know the way that we think about data is a little bit different. You know they're more inclined to let the let the models tell them what is going on. Social scientists tend to have more a priori assumptions about what's happening in the world that they want to be testing as hypothesis testing, as opposed to more exploratory data mining, which is more what a computer scientist would do. But Regardless, logistic regression is logistic regression. Rather, you let the computer decide what the variables you're going to keep are, or if you decide what the variables you're going to keep are. Um, so, so part of what it means to me is that is that I'm a collaborator with computer scientists, and that we're trying to solve really thorny social problems like homelessness or systemic racism or HIV prevention, and we're trying to create new technologies to facilitate. Um, new solutions, right? And so one of the, the, the key projects that launched the center that I, that I work on was an HIV prevention project. And so I was interested in designing a social network-based HIV prevention intervention. And one of the thorny issues there is that uh, it's not always, it's not, who delivers the messages about HIV prevention in a norm-changing, message-disseminating campaign is sometimes as important as the norm-changing messages themselves, right? So um, telling your friend to wear a condom when they have sex is not that challenging of a message to concoct. Um, if I'm telling it to my friends, they're going to hear it better than if somebody who they care about less tells them that. So one of the things that was really a challenge for us when we were designing these programs was how do we have a wide reach quickly so that with this very transient group of young people, we can get the message out really fast and we can find these key influencers. And what's really cool about the work that we did with the AI modeling that uh, Milan Tambe and Emilia Yadov and Brian Wilder and, and uh, particularly those three uh, helped us design for this particular study was that they were able to create these influence maximization algorithms that um, could really beat out any more static computational, you know, oh, this is the person with the most connections sort of um, 
uh, model. And, and, you know, when we did the field tests, it actually worked, right? Like we actually found out that, you know, when we did this field test with about 800 youth that the a we what we did was uh, a study with three arms in it one was just an observation you know services rendered at the drop-in centers as usual another version of the study was a group of youth who were selected based on being the most popular people in the network and then we used the algorithm uh, that that um, had been designed that was a, an influence maximization algorithm to actually select the the, the pure uh, the people who would be trained as peer leaders who would disseminate these messages and then we found out that, um, you know, when we did this with about 800 youth, that in fact, the AI driven arm, uh, not only do we have more young people reporting uh, increases in condom use, especially around anal sex, uh, but also that the changes happened faster, which for us was really important because the idea is that you want these messages for homeless, you, you know, youth who are experiencing homelessness that are very transient, you want them to happen really fast because they're, you know, they're going to move. The friendships can break very quickly. And also some young people are going to leave uh, your network uh, because they're going to go to another city or they're going to get housed or they're going to go to jail. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why young people uh, leave the network, but they do. And so, um, and, and that, um, you know, that kind of work is really exciting. And so, you know, and, and I guess serves as a good case study for the kind, what does it mean to do in practice, like an AI for social good, right? I think it's such an abstract concept that sometimes I think it's a little bit easier to say, oh, we had a, a very specific influence maximization computer algorithm that we built for this context that solved a particular intervention problem for us. And then we, as researchers, we tested out to see if that in fact worked. And so, you know, they, as the computer scientists, did a lot of computational experiments using existing data that I had on, on youth networks. And then I, as a social work scientist, did actual boots on the ground, training MSW interns to deliver the intervention. They delivered the intervention to, you know, several hundred young people over a couple of years. And, um, and, and, you know, you know, we were fortunate to find out that our efforts were, were rewarded that this thing actually works, um, which is really cool. And, you know, now we're, now we're doing the boring academic thing of like turning this into a manuscript and sending it off to a journal to be published. It's like, you know, it's like, that's the, you know, but you got to do that stuff, right? It's a, you know, you'll never get tenure if you don't publish your stuff. Uh, you can't just do the, you can't just do the fun stuff and then move on to the next fun thing. You got to prove that you did the good stuff. So one, one question that I, I have, and I'm coming from, you know, a religious studies philosophy background in terms of my PhD, um, which probably means I'm about to ask an obnoxious question. And it's true. I am. Uh, where I get caught in this conversation is that question of social good. And like who gets to decide what the social good is, what are the metrics of social good, uh, especially if it's coming from the academy, which historically maybe there have been some critiques about the academy not necessarily helping with the, the overall social good, um, depending on where you're sitting, right? Like so for you as you go to design these studies, like how do you think about the question of social good and then where AI can uh, participate in that conversation? So as a discipline, social work is very concerned with the ethics of doing social work and of the and of the action of, of engaging in 
um, trying to address social injustice, right? So it is, um, so I, I made the joke about what is not good enough that I'm just a social work professor. I mean, because on some level, you know, it's the, it's the guiding principles of social work that really direct the mission of social good. And in fact, when we were creating this research center, uh, you know, that I, that I call CASE. So the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Society, C-A-I-S, CASE. So if I refer to CASE, that's what I mean. So when we were building out CASE, you know, we were, we were looking to the grand challenges of social work, which are things like ending homeless. So grand challenges of social work, for those of you who are not in social work, is a series of 12 challenges that the National Academy of Social Work came up with a few years ago that the idea was if there was movement made along any one of these 12 problems in the next decade in a meaningful way, that the the world would be a better place for it. And there are things like ending homelessness or addressing racial inequities or um, healthy development for all youth. Um, one of them is even very prosaic. It's technology, the promise of technology for social good, which I think falls into the very same trap that you're saying before. So, but most of them, most of the challenges have a little bit more content uh, to them than the technology for social good one does. And so part of my thinking is that, you know, th this is the sort of thing that we use within the discipline to think about what is the work that we're doing to try to make the the world a better place and that and that those are the kinds of things that we think about but interestingly you know social work is a very pragmatic discipline as opposed to say religious studies or philosophy so we're not necessarily um maybe uh, arguing with this is our definition of social good this is how we this is how we are going to determine who determines what social good is, that we're a little bit more, we're going to do it and see how it goes. And we're going to try to do the best that we can. That's kind of the, the you know, the, the tradition of Jane Addams, which is not to say that it's thoughtless or that it's, or that it's not intentional. It's just, it's very pragmatic. And so in that respect, you know, we have these 12 challenges from social work that are these guiding uh, sort of problem areas. And most of the work of my center, at least, falls under one of them. I mean, most of the stuff that we're doing is, you know, we're, we're doing work around um, health and well-being, around substance abuse. We're doing work around um, uh, uh, fairness, bias, and, and equity issues. We're doing work around homelessness. We're doing work around... Um, Suicide prevention, specifically, we've got a couple of projects. We're doing some work about um, the impact of global climate change. We've recently done some work looking at trying to help with COVID. Uh, one of the studies is actually around um, where could we allocate uh, mobile testing sites so as to get to the most vulnerable individuals. And another study was trying to understand how to make uh, fair decisions about how to allocate scarce resources in moments of crisis, like say experienced uh, in Italy or in Florida, where you know you've got you're running out of um, you know uh, ICU beds and things like this, right? So how do you like, you know what is what are the what are the um, priorities of those systems to you know who gets those resources and how might those things be done? And and there's ways that you know algorithmic thinking can help you know. Um, come up with uh, ideas for solving some of those problems or ideas for querying in the case of the preference the preferences about who gets resources it doesn't make the decision for you but it, it's a it's a series of algorithms that help you balance um essentially 
comparisons of do you like version do you like choice a or choice b better and it's an algorithm that helps you wind down the 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 usually when you're thinking about making decisions that are complex you have thousands of options and it helps you narrow quickly by pairwise comparisons you know with six or seven key questions what really is your preference you know is it for equity or is it for efficiency or is it for transparency what you know what do you really care about as the decision maker in this context and and if you know and if balancing those things and balancing those things quickly is something that you want to do then we can help design tools that might assist that um, but you know we're not we're not trying to replace human judgment either with most of our tools it's usually more the idea that we're trying to augment human decision-making processes. And I guess that's another piece of the AI for social good that my research center being steeped in a school of social work and in engineering. So it's, it's a, it's a 50, 50 split in, at USC between social work and, and, and engineering. And, um, because of that social work, uh, you know, we, we're, we're really not interested in replacing human decisions with algorithms, but rather creating decision-making aids or automating parts of the decision-making process that are very burdensome for people that people don't actually like. I mean, people don't like to schedule things, right? But whereas computer algorithms are very happy to schedule things for you. Um, you know, the computer, you know, an AI will not complain about the drudgery of scheduling. You know, it just does it. Um, so it's, uh, anyway. Um, not sure if that helps, but <laughs> that's, that's the, the, the wanderings of my mind this afternoon. So there you, there you go. No, definitely. And Eric, I'm pretty curious, uh, what your view is on the potentially negative, um, thoughts towards some of the work that you're doing. So I'm specifically referring to, uh, the solutionism trap, which was introduced by, uh, Andrew Selps and others, um, in a paper a few years ago. And then also, uh, the term techno chauvinism, which is all kind of saying that, uh, it's, it's this concept that, uh, some people think that technology is the best solution to some of the hardest problems in society, for better or for worse. And I'm curious if anyone's approached you with these terms or similar terms and critiqued your work in that way and what your response might be to that. Uh, I hope that the podcast conveys my, my sense of humor about these things. So. Um, a lot of the times I think, wow, you're, you're talking to the wrong dude. Like I still write things down with a pen and a notebook. And if we were in an, if we were in a different room, I could show you that I've got a shelf with like a couple thousand LPs on it. I'm a very analog kind of Luddite sort of guy. I don't actually think that technology for technology's sake is a good thing. It's more that I am interested in solving thorny problems and I'm interested in thinking about things in novel ways because I think if you imagine a problem like homelessness, right? If it were something that a particular discipline could solve easily, then we would have solved it. If all we needed was a bunch of really smart economists or a bunch of really smart social workers, then we'd be done, but we're not, we're, we're mired, you know? And so I think that bringing people together that think about the world in very different ways, which it turns out, you know, shock of shocks, social workers and computer scientists think about the world differently. Um, 
interestingly, they also think about the world similarly, which is kind of a funny thing because engineers and social workers are both very pragmatic oriented folks. But, uh, you know, our training is very, very different. I mean, most, I mean, I took like five semesters of college calculus, but most social work professors did not. Most of us probably tapped out at that first semester when, you know, your general ed requirement was done and haven't thought about, you know, partial derivatives ever since and are happy that that's the way that their life is. And, you know, um, whereas, you know, obviously, you know, if you're if you're a computer scientist, you know, and you're watching this podcast, I mean, you know, you guys talk about, you know, proving theorems all the time, right? I mean, I, you know, there are likely some social work scientists that have, you know, maybe not proven a math theorem since like high school geometry, if maybe then, you know, uh, but disciplinary training aside, you know, that that the, those differences in perspectives about how to think about and problematize things can be very important because when 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 people that are tr that are smart and are thoughtful about their specific training, their specific disciplines get together and start asking each other what's going on to the other one. We end up asking each other really fundamental, really hard questions, right? Like we ask the sorts of questions that like Dylan and, and you are asking me like, you know, is it even okay to do this stuff, right? So I mean, so they'll, they'll ask me, I mean, usually because they're computer scientists, they don't ask me, is it okay to do stuff? Like computer scientists like to do stuff. Um, they, you know, but, but they will ask me things like, you know, how do you know that this aspect of human behavior happens in this way? And so then I find myself having to really dig down into, you know, what are, what are the assumptions of human behavior that are underlying this? What is the research that backs this up? And, you know, and, and vice versa, when I'm wanting to know what they're doing, I will ask them probably what seems like very foundational questions about how these algorithms work. And so we, I think we've all become much more in touch with, um, we've had to, we have to know our stuff a lot better because we have to explain it to people that are not trained with all of the techno babble that, that we all get trained in as, as academics. Um, and, um, but, you know, I don't know if I'm even answering the question at this point. I mean, I, I feel I'm not trying to dodge the question about, you know, you know, do, do, do people give you a hard time about this? I mean, every once in a while, yeah, people give me a hard time about like, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, you're trying to create algorithms to solve social problems. And, and shouldn't that be something that is about human judgment? And and some of my answers are, yes, of course, we're not trying to replace humans. We're trying to create tools that that will augment the work of humans, not replace humans. Um you know, are we fetishizing technology? Maybe. I mean, you know, even, even though I myself, you know, tend to like, you know, notebooks and, and albums, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I mean, look, it's, it's, um, you know, I still am a guy who, you know, design, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing a project on addressing systemic racism around homelessness and we're designing algorithms to do it. Right. Certainly. There's been criticisms about using algorithms that have generated and perpetuated systemic racism, right? Especially in the context of, say, the justice, uh, the, the you know space of of of, of uh, like bail sentencing, right? I mean, um, bail bonds uh, sentencing, and it, we've or uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm probably not, but I mean, there there was sort of a very famous case that I think it was reported on in about 2016, 17, where there had been an, an automated system based on a machine learning uh, algorithm that was uh, essentially um, 
if you were black, your chances of getting a, a, a bail were, were radically less than if you were, had the exact same set of offenses, but you were, but you were white. And, and so there was all these problems, you know, about racial inequality that were being essentially perpetuated by ML. And, and frankly, that can happen, right? I mean, we, we were looking at this in, in the context of this um, study that I'm, that I'm doing where we're trying to address systemic racism um, in the context of the, the housing service authority um, in LA, you know, if you look at the data that we've got on existing housing resources and you and you use the existing scoring tool, which is kind of a, a paper pencil algorithm, right? Um, it's not terror. There are some problems about racial equity in outcomes that that you can observe in the data in that um, in 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 some of the data sets that we have from. Uh, uh, some we have got a 16 city data set of youth uh, from across the country and we can see there that African American youth in particular are not doing as well in the outcomes of their placements. Um, if you do an ML approach and you just try to maximize the efficiency of the outcomes um, based on um, you know trying to maximize who's going to get uh, who, who you can actually exacerbate the already bad race inequalities can become even worse if you just do like a, you know, just a out of the box decision tree or a logistic regression sort of ML thing. Um, but if you then, you know, you do some, some clever, um, you know, algorithm design and, and try to impose constraints that, you know, insist upon the, upon fair distributions, you can actually, um, rectify the situation you can actually find you can actually generate um uh, uh allocation algorithms and tools that would that actually are are fair and 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 unbiased with respect to race um so you know you can use technology poorly and you can use technology well right and i think part of what makes the the work that i've been involved in um potentially powerful in in a good way is that by bringing together people like myself that do whose background is in social work and we're really steeped in the context you know we're really thinking about what are the problems to be alerted to and so you know we're asking things like is there racial bias in these data that we need to um maybe solve a for as opposed to let you know run you know run rampant um not to say that you know computer scientists can't be thoughtful, but I mean, you know, I've spent twenty years thinking about homelessness and what, or almost twenty years thinking about homelessness and what the issues that we need to be uh, thinking about in that context are, and I can bring a lot to the table, you know, to a modeler whom for whom you know they may have been thinking about homelessness for a few months or you know at this point you know. They've been, you know, like Phoebe, who's who's working on this particular project with me at USC, Phoebe Vianas. I mean, she's been thinking about it since about 2017, so it's you know a few years, but still, you know, I I still think that, you know, I mean, she's you know, she, I I've become better about computer science. She's become better about social work. We we learn a lot from each other. I mean, it's it's kind of the fun. It's part of part of the fun. I mean, you know, I think this is the other thing that I think sometimes gets lost in academia is that people are not always very joyful. You know, I think that it's it's a, you know, it can be such a a terribly serious business like we all take ourselves so freaking seriously it's like and 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 you know and 
sure, you know, homelessness is a serious issue, right? Like I take it serious. I just don't take myself that seriously. And I think that, you know, a little, you know, and, and one of the things that's cool about this sort of the AI for social good, at least the way that I've concocted it, where it's these collaborations, you know, we have fun, you know, we, 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 we get together and we work on, we work on things that are, that are different from what most people in our respective disciplines are working on. And we try to, you know, keep a sense of humor about the fact that some of our colleagues are going to look at us like we're from Mars and like, that's going to happen and that's okay. And, 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 and also that, you know, and, and, and to try to, you know, enjoy the, the, some of the confusions that, that we create when we, when we realize, I mean, cause you know, it is challenging to learn to talk to computer scientists when you don't have a computer science background. And it's challenging, I'm sure, to talk to a social scientist when you don't have a social scientist background. I mean, we all learn these very, very specific, very jargon-filled languages, and we've got all these you know, shortcuts that we, that we speak in, you know, I mean, the three letter acronyms alone are enough to drive a person crazy. Right. You know, so it's, 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 yeah. Anyway. So, so on that, Eric, the, um, I'm, I'm really caught by this idea of, uh, of joy. And then also it sounds like some level of like curiosity in this interdisciplinary space, but I'm, um, I'm curious if you, I guess the other thing that's, that's stuck with me through this entire interview is when you started talking about how you got into this work and uh, the population that you work with, especially homeless youth, and that concept of knowing the names of the people that you work with and them knowing your name. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of, in terms of that like personal connection, if there's any sort of like story or um, memory that you have of this work that is particularly staying with you that reminds you of that joy and that curiosity. I mean, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it kind of depends on, on, on which piece of this I'm, I'm thinking about. But I mean, I, I guess... Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I, so so one one story that sticks out is is sort of the the way in which algorithms can be smart in ways that sometimes social workers even are not. So um, one of my favorite stories to tell is is about this this one young man who, when we were doing the HIV prevention intervention. Um, I had done an HIV prevention intervention a couple of years previous and, and, and had done sort of the uh, atypical public health thing, which is, you know, if you don't pick the most popular youth, you, you sort of handpick young people that you think will be good at this work, which usually means that they're sort of pro-social in some sort of way that seems like they're, you know, adhering to kind of norms of, of, of sort of mainstream society and adulthood, right? And um, it turns out that that's not always the best set of decisions to make. Um, uh, you know, and, and what we found when, when we did this one algorithm was that, you know, algorithms will sometimes pick people that are unlikely candidates, right? So we, we the algorithm picked this one this one guy who, well, I'll, I'll, I'll call him Jeff. That's not his real name. It's a Jeff, right? And so Jeff got pulled from by the algorithm and I hadn't seen Jeff for a few days at the at the drop-in center. It was coming up time we needed him to show up for this training that we were going to do on on Friday. It was a Wednesday afternoon, so I decided to go. The, the drop-in center was by the beach, uh, Venice Beach. So I went down to the Venice Beach Boardwalk, and I went up to the, headed toward the skate park and looking for this guy because he hangs out on on. He, this is sort of one of the areas that he hangs out, and I was told and. And I see him on this uh, grassy area that's uh, just before you get to the beach proper. And he's kind of on this hilly area with some palm trees, a couple of his buddies. 
and he is literally passing a joint with his friends, right? As I walk up, because I mean, this is this is California, right? Like you can get away with this kind of thing. And uh, and as I walk up to him, I think, great, this is gonna go. This is this is just, I mean, so I, I say to him, like, hey, Jeff, what's going on? He's like, hey, dude, what's up? And I'm like, all right, hey, man, you know, so so remember that uh, that that uh, yeah, that study you signed up for, and we said that a computer program might pick you, um, you know, to potentially be trained to be a, a peer leader. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so it picked you. Oh, sweet dude. I was like, so do you want to do that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, is this guy even going to remember this conversation? I mean, I mean, he's not drunk, so probably he's going to remember it, but is he going to care? So I said to him, all right, man, like, you know, look, the, the training is going to be on Friday morning. Um, it's day after tomorrow. It's going to be at the drop-in center. It's going to be at 9 a.m. You know, so, you know, you can, can you be there? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, dude, so, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and I'm thinking to myself, no way. This this guy's not his action. So I show up about quarter two to set things up. I get out of my car. I've got a whole bunch of stuff that I'm staggering on my car with. There's Jeff on a skateboard, sitting in front of the gate, cup of coffee in his hand. Hey, Eric, can I help you get stuff out of your, you know, help you unload stuff from your car, you know? And he went on to be like the, like one of the best peer leaders we trained, right? So me as a, you know, you know, despite the long hair, sort of square academic, who's gonna be like, whatever, this guy's not gonna show up. You know, it turns out that, you know, I'm wrong, right? You know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, the algorithm knew this is a guy who's connected. And it turns out that all he needed was something, somebody, in this case, a computer program to see him and say, you're important, man. Do you, do you want to be a part of change in your community? And his answer was, yes, I do. And, and he was all in. And, and like, that's a, you know, that's a really cool reminder that sometimes, um, you know, our, even our best intentions can go a little bit funny. And, and sometimes, you know, the solutions that we create are, are better, are, are, are more impactful than we even realize they're going to be. Right. And, and so this, this program, one of the things that was kind of cool about it, I, I kind of joke about it was sort of like the breakfast club versus the high school football team. So this is dating myself. Right. So yes, I was a teenager in the eighties. So there was this movie, if you haven't seen it, you can look it up on IMDb called the breakfast club. And in this movie, there's the, there's this group of the, you know, these five kids that are spending all day detention there. It's like a jock, a print, you know, a, a, a stoner, a, uh, 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 a nerd, a, a, um, you know, a goth, uh, you know, and I guess a princess. And so these, these kids from these different, you know, these different social cliques, they all come together, they become friends for the day. And then at the end of the day, they, they kind of all go their separate ways again. And, uh, that's kind of the dynamics that we had with this algorithm. Like it brought in all these young people from these different social cliques. We trained them up to be our, our outreach workers. And then they went back out into the world. And that's what the algorithm was pulling for was people that were important to these specific little communities. Whereas when we, when we did the, you know, the popularity version, which was like the, the way that public health has thought you should do this for the last 20 years, what happened was we basically got what felt like the, the high school football team. In this case, it was like some skater bros. But basically what it was was a, a bunch of guys that knew each other and they had some hangers on to their clique. But, you know, the, the, the information doesn't really spread outside of that core group very fast. And they brought all of their nonsense with them, right? So it was, you know, the trainings with that group were just so hard because they just were, 
you know, there's all over the place because there's all this like sort of jockeying for their, you know, their internal status hierarchies that was going on. Whereas, you know, when we had our little breakfast club, they're just, you know, they were, they were there with the mission. It was, it was so cool. And so, you know, algorithms do really cool things. And, and, you know, so, so I think about some of those kind of anecdotes about, you know, why do I do this work and how does it work? And, and, and honestly, it's amazing to see people thrive, right? Like another one of these young people um, who was one of the early peer leaders in this thing, you know, I, I ran into him on Venice Beach uh, about a month or so before COVID started. I just happened to be walking down the street and I ran into this guy and, you know, he's, he's he was currently working two jobs. He was stable. His life had turned around and he was really, it was really cool. He was like, you know, your, 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 your program was one of the, the first things that, you know, I got to do that really gave me a sense of purpose and meaning again, you know, when I was, when I was experiencing homelessness and it was so, it was so cool to be a part of that. And it was one of the things that helped, you know, it wasn't the only thing for this guy, but it was one of the things that was part of his story that turned things around. And, you know, and that's a really, um, yeah, that's a really, rewarding experience to have happen. It doesn't happen all the time, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it, I, I can end up on Venice Beach and not run into any of these folks many times, you know, but, but every once in a while, you know, and, and then it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice reminder that, you know, and, and, and that's, I think the, the, some of the, some of the joy of it. So it, it I think AI for social good can actually be a very human uh, experience, um, you know, especially if you, go to the the level where you actually implement some of these solutions in the real world um, and not just, you know, kind of do them as, as hypothetical desk exercises, you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's a really good symbol of how meaningful this work seems that it can be. And um, kind of switching directions a little bit here as we near towards the, the latter half of the interview. Um, as you know, Eric, you're on the Radical AI podcast, and we were briefly mentioning this earlier uh, to kind of um, foreshadow the question that we ask all of our guests, which is to ask you how you define the word radical and if you situate the work that you're doing within the radical ai definition that you have well i did mention that i was a child a teenager in the 80s right so i mean so i so radical is something that you know, as soon as you say what does radical mean to you it's like it's like a slang for it's cool um but no uh it's i i do think of what we do as radical I think I, I've I've always been a, a fan of the 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 line of social work that's part of the Saul Alinsky community organizing rule. You know, he has this great book, Rules for Radicals. And and while you know he's not a social worker in a traditional sense, you know, he's certainly somebody that that social workers you know read and, and point to as as a social work itself is a, is a pretty radical discipline in in the sense that if you think about radical as being on the on the uh, on the sort of more extreme side of the left of the political spectrum, right? I mean, this is this is a you know we're and for me the AI that we do is very much about social justice. So it's about trying to do, trying to make, if we're lucky, radical change that we can have um, and that AI could help facilitate that. Now. Um, probably the best example of that is this project that we're doing with systemic racism, right? I mean, so we're, you know, we understand that housing insecurity, homelessness is something that happens, especially for black Americans 
in ways that are deeply tied into the 400-year history going back to the first Africans brought over as slaves and a series of laws. I mean, one of my PhD students uh, who just graduated, uh, Dr. China Hill, she has a chapter in her dissertation, if you go look it up online, that is about the, she calls it the algorithm of, of, of black homelessness. And she, and she uses that as a, as a, um, essentially like a, a play on words, but also as a way of thinking about the fact that there has been a, a systematic um, series of policies and laws that have created disparate, you know, disparate outcomes uh, for black Americans who experience homelessness. And, and so we're trying to design algorithms that could be used to combat that long history of systemic racism. That's a pretty radical idea. I mean, if you think about systemic racism and the, the protests that are happening in the streets around Black Lives Matter, I mean, you know, some academics designing some algorithms is not the same as thousands of people, you know, marching in the streets. But we are interested in trying to change and address systemic racism with that project, you know, that is, that is absolutely one of the goals of this, of this work. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting moment in time that I feel that I'm even allowed to within the academy say that I have a project that is about addressing systemic racism and that people, um, you know, A, understand what that means more so than they used to, which is pretty amazing. And and B, that that I'm allowed to 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 do that. And like I keep my job. I mean, I guess that's one of the benefits of having tenure, right? Is that you know it's freedom of speech. But I mean, but it's important to 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 it is important when addressing issues of social justice and social injustice to be plain and direct and not to, and not to, um, you know, obfuscate the truth, right? I mean, if, if what we're talking about around homelessness is that there's issues of systemic racism in the history of America that have, that have led to inequalities for black Americans around homelessness, this is something that should be talked about because it's not going to be fixed if we don't address it. Just by talking about it, it's not going to fix it. We have to actually design new systems. We have to create new laws. We have to create new policies. You know, these these algorithms could potentially be tools that could be implemented in such in such systems. But, um, but the dialogue is a part of it as well, right? Um, so, you know, I, and it's and it's radical, dude. As we look towards closing out the interview, we like to ask pieces of advice from our guests, and I'm curious for you. So we have a lot of folks that listen to the show who are really struggling with how heavy these topics can be and struggling to find hope and joy in this. And I'm wondering for maybe if you have like a, you know, colleague in mind or someone who's working in industry or a student, maybe like, what would you say uh, as a piece of advice to them to help them reconnect with that joy? Sure, sure. I mean, I think... Um... I've always been a fan of Viktor Frankl. He has this, uh, he's an existential um, psychologist. Um, he has this book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in that, one of the ideas is that um, part of what human beings are striving for is a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. This is one of the sort of fundamental things that we need to do as humans is, is find meaning. And I think... 
I that resonates for me, and and I think part of my um, joy in this, like when I talk, when I tell stories about these these young men, uh, you know, who experience homelessness, or the young women who've experienced homelessness that that I've known in my past, you know, I there are, I try to focus in on the the wins, uh, the successes, and I also realize that working toward social justice, working on problems that are difficult um, provides a sense of meaning and purpose in one's life. And I think that is that there is joy to be derived from living a meaningful life. It's maybe not a, uh, you know, a dopamine high kind of joy. I mean, it's, it's more of a, of a, of a contentment sort of joy, right? It's more of a, um, you know, not to be too spiritual, says the, you know, the, the hippie, but I mean, I think that it, there's a, you know, it's the more the kind of looking, it, it is a, yeah, it's, it's a joy in knowing that you're walking a path that you are in harmony with other people and that you're in harmony with the world and that, that you're trying to be a part of solutions and that all of that certainly feels good. And, and I think that, you know, but it but it can also be overwhelming at times to to work on issues of social justice and social injustice, and it's the sort of thing that you know can easily bring one to you know tears of frustration as well as tears of joy if you if you um, you know if you really think about these things deeply, um, and that's okay though you know, and I and I think um, I think sometimes in. American culture and society, we're always kind of looking for a quick fix, happy, you know, it's, I think this is part of why we have, you know, some of the world's worst rates of substance abuse and et cetera, is that we're always, you know, we're looking for these, these quick highs, these quick fixes. We're not necessarily willing to put in the work and wanting to think about, you know, what is the long-term, you know, joys, the, the engagements that, you know, come through a sense of meaning and purpose. And I think that, that that's a, those a life where you work on problems of social injustice in my experience is one that is very joyful in the in a in having meaning in having uh friendships in having co you know colleagues that you know you you can you can work sort of hand in hand with i think that the competitive aspect of academia is really less in these spaces where social justice is is a is a is is so prevalent because the the concern to do the right thing sometimes is more important than who gets to be first author or who's getting another grant or who got published where and you know that's nice because really you know if there are some homeless youth whose lives are made better because of the work that i do that's awesome if I publish another paper that's in a journal, I don't know that that matters that much, you know? I mean, and um, that, you know, isn't always the most popular thing to say as a professor, right? I'm supposed to say, it's really important to publish and win grants because that those are the markers of success and achievement in, in the academy. And it's like, you know, yeah, those things are those things are good. Those things are important. Those things are good for career advancement. But you know, it, those things may not unto themselves bring you a sense of purpose and joy in your life. And you know, 
this is it guys. Like this is, this is the human experience as we know it. I mean, if there is something else after this, like we don't know what it is exactly. So, you know, we're, you know, and, you know, be, be here and be as present in this, in this here as you can, is my thoughts about it. But then I'm becoming a devolving into being a hippie again. So <laughs> now, Eric, thank you so much for that healthy dose of perspective, especially coming from uh, fellow academics. <laughs> and thank you for sharing um, advice about joy and the meaningful quality of your work. So thanks for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I, I wish you all the, the best with, with this and, and, and keep pushing for more radical AI. I think it's a great thing to be doing. So um, it's been my pleasure. We want to thank Eric Rice again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And my first reaction to this interview was a bit of conflict, actually. Uh, and this is something that I've felt a lot when it comes to AI for social good initiatives, because on the one hand, I see so much potential for amazing results, and I see uh, so much potential for really meaningful work, like Eric was explaining through his firsthand experiences. And then I also read papers and I see different talks that are being given by people like Deb Raji, who are explaining some of the potential harms of things like techno-solutionism and techno-chauvinism and people who think that technology can be the solution for everything. And I don't think Eric is one of those people. And I think that he is actually a good example of less harmful ways to implement AI for social good. But I do think that it is a fine line that we have to balance. And we have to ask ourselves, when can we leverage AI for um, different ways of solving societal problems and when are we maybe exploiting technology for things that could be more harmful rather than beneficial when we place them out into society and just hope that they might be able to solve something that they have no place in solving in the first place. I think, uh, and I, I know we're probably getting close to, to time here, but uh, one thing I just want to throw into the mix is the role of, uh, of ego in all of this. Um, and like this enlightenment ego, especially of like, well, we know we, we can fix it. We can fix it all. Like I, I have the power, like I'm going to make, you know, nature bend to my command. I'm going to make the social structure bend to my command through this like technology as a tool. And I think, uh, Eric's work is a really good, especially like, I'm just so touched by his stories of like how he knows everyone he works with. Right. Or most of the people he work with, uh, like on an, on a first name basis is just like incredible to me. Cause I realize how. Uh, little that that can happen in research spaces and so that question of humility but also like as researchers as scientists as people dealing with technology and designing technology like how do we treat our own ego and is it possible that sometimes that ego uh, grows a little bit larger than um, the task that we're trying to complete or the problem that we're trying to solve but I think that's all I can say for that on that for right now um, but for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch next week's episode on Wednesday and join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. As always, stay radical. Stay radical.